Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, if you would. Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read starting in verse uh, 21. Matthew 16, verse 21. Uh, Here is what Matthew records for us, this scene from the life of the Lord Jesus. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is uh, the theme of this passage, which I've tried to make visible in the title that I gave this uh, sermon, is something that every mother can understand. Today is a day of maternal glory. It's Mother Glory Day, and it's time for you to get maybe a special meal or a card or a gift or at least, if nothing else, a grudging hug, the only one you get all year from your surly teenage son. This is a day for maternal glory. But without suffering, there is no motherhood. You can think about the suffering that some of you endured to become a mother. There was uh, perhaps a season of infertility or miscarriages or maneuvering through the social services um, uh, system. We could talk about the suffering involved. We won't, but we could talk about the suffering involved in what a pregnancy does to a woman's body. And then there was labor, 27 hours of labor that you endured, followed still by a C-section. You brought that baby home, and there was months of sleeplessness. Think about all the work involved in feeding and clothing and uh, bathing and and, uh, getting that child to sleep. And it doesn't stop, does it? It never stops. It goes on for the next 50 years. You're involved in, in teaching and volunteering and transporting and cooking and cleaning and watching baseball games and attending concerts and waiting up late for them to come home and meeting boyfriends or girlfriends and, and, and her wedding planning and praying and praying and praying. There is no motherhood without suffering. It's a theme that works pretty well with uh, what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew chapter 16 because there is no glory without suffering either. 
I wonder if you've noticed as we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew that we kind of had slowed down here as we've come to Matthew chapter 16. And the reason we did, these are very familiar texts, but they're also central uh, texts and texts that are easy to misunderstand. The disciples certainly misunderstood what Jesus was saying. In fact, Jesus says that what he's saying here in this passage is out of step with the way that we human beings normally think. Uh, But if you want to understand what Jesus has done and who he is and what it means to follow him, you've got to deal with this passage. It's a passage that has to be handled with care, too, because it's possible that someone might use this passage like a stick to beat people up, as if to to show to people, look, if you want to follow Jesus, you got to do this, and Christianity is dull and bleak and repressive. Well, he says, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. These are not giddy, glittery concepts. But but Jesus is not, he's not trying to push his disciples away. He's actually trying to invite them in. He wants them to follow him. He, He wants them to be close to him and to follow him hard after him. I wonder if you read this passage this way as an invitation and not as something repellent. I don't want to use this passage like a stick to beat people up. Instead, I want to show you, my hope is to show you that this passage is like wind in your sails, meant to push you forward gladly as you follow Jesus. My goal is to show that to you in the text and show you that that's what Jesus was after uh, too. I want to walk through this passage under two headings, two headings that I borrowed from F. Dale Bruner. We're going to talk first about Jesus' cross, and then we're going to talk about your cross. Jesus' cross is the subject of verses 21 and 22 and 23, and your cross is the subject of verses 24 through 28. So let's start by talking about Jesus' cross here. Verse 21 begins with this phrase, from that time on, from that time on. Well, we should think about that time. That time is the passage just preceding where Jesus is meeting with his disciples up far north at Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them this question, who do people say that I am? And Peter, having it been revealed to him by, his, by God the Father, says, you're the Messiah. You're the, the deliverer. You're the one that God promised. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And on the basis of Peter's confession, Jesus begins to explain to them what kind of Messiah he's going to be, what it means that he's the Messiah. He has at this point, up to this point in time, made some indirect allusions, some references to his death, but here he gets uh, very explicit and very direct. He says, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must, and that's an important word, it's a very short word, It's a very short word in Greek, actually, too. But underneath this word must is a word that speaks to divine necessity. This is God's will, and it must happen. It is certain and non-negotiable. This is what is going to happen. It's been foreordained, uh, planned from before the beginning of time. This must happen. And, and what must happen is summarized in four parallel verbs in the passage. What must Jesus do? Jesus first, he must go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem, the passage says. 
Um, Jesus has done all his work thus far. The vast majority, rather, of his ministry has been in Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel, up with the hicks in the north, in rural, working class, northern Galilee. But to die, Jesus must go to Jerusalem. It's interesting. Look what Jesus says about Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, not a great city. <laughs> you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Here's a mothering image in the gospel. Jesus says, I'd gather you together as a hen. You're the city, Jerusalem, that kills prophets and stone those who are sent to you and I must go to you too. He must go to Jerusalem. Second, he must suffer many things. He must suffer many things. And there's some people who think here that Jesus is making allusions to Isaiah 53, um, that passage that we're so familiar with in the Hebrew scriptures about the uh, suffering servant of God. Look at Isaiah 53:10, what it says. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord's will. It must happen. Why is the servant in Isaiah 53 suffering so much? It was God's will. It must happen. Jesus had said he would suffer many things. Look at Isaiah 53, 4 and, uh, 4 and 5. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Think about those verbs. He must suffer many things. And Isaiah said, he's punished, stricken, afflicted, pierced, crushed. Isaiah tells us that he did this for us. This is not explicit in this passage of scripture in Matthew that we're considering. It's more explicit elsewhere in Matthew. But here's the reason that Jesus died as a product of the will of God for us in our place, bearing the punishment that we deserved. Substitution is a very important word to us in Christ's church. Jesus died for us. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must, third, be killed. He must be killed. Here's the end point of the suffering of many things. He must be killed. And then fourth, he must be raised. He must be raised. That word raised, I don't know if you've ever noticed this in your reading of the Bible. The word raised, referring to the resurrection in the New Testament, is most often passive. That is, somebody is doing it to someone else. Jesus was raised by his father. The same Lord who willed to crush him is also the one who raised him from the dead. How great must God the Father's delight in his son be? He who was obedient unto death and to his, to his own joy, his father raises, he raises his son from the dead. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must be killed and he must be raised. This is a message, now we should be honest, this is a message that we're very used to hearing 
It's very important to us, the truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. Paul says it's of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. We talk about this all the time. We try to build our lives around this truth that Jesus died for us and rose again. But to the disciples, <laughs> to the disciples, this is the first time they're hearing something like this, or the first time it's really dawning on them, and it does not accord with what they thought the Messiah was going to do. Messiahs don't suffer, at least this much. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs aren't killed. Messiahs judge. Messiahs don't lose. Messiahs win. Can't talk about a crucified Messiah. That's like talking about a defeated champion or a losing winner. It just doesn't work. So Peter takes Jesus aside. The text says he rebuked him. <laughs> Peter's just been appointed by Jesus. He, Jesus has just spoken to Peter about the special role he's going to have in the origin of Jesus' new people, the church. And Peter seems to be taking this role seriously, and he sets himself to set Jesus straight about what a Messiah is supposed to do. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. There's a lot to think about here. Um, just imagine, Peter has just told Jesus, you're the Messiah, and now he's going to clarify for Jesus what a Messiah is supposed to do because apparently Jesus doesn't know. Or, think about this too, he calls him Lord. You're Lord, but then he uses the word never. Never, Lord. You can't have both those things together. You can't say never and Lord at the same time. No, Lord. Oops, nope. Uh, it's interesting, in, in the book of Romans, when Paul is thinking about the grand plan of God and the great glory of God, he, he, he marvels at what God has planned to do, and he says, who, who can ever stand as God's counselor? Who could ever give God advice? That's what Paul says in Romans 8. In Matthew 16, Peter says, me, I can. I'll give God some advice. I'll tell him. Oh, Peter. Now, I think actually there, there may be some things in the roots of this passage that are actually helpful for us. I'm, I, I want to be careful here because I'm not sure that Peter has this in mind. I may be speaking more than Peter has in mind, but I still think there's some help here for us. This word that's translated never, never, Lord, actually underneath it is uh, the word, literally the word is merciful, merciful. Now you ask... How did, never is a fine translation, never is an accurate translation, that's what the word was used for, but how in the world, what's the connection between merciful and never? How did that, how did that happen? Well, um, you can imagine it would be something like this. Someone would say, oh, this trouble's going to come into my life, and someone would say, oh, no, 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 God is too merciful for that to happen to you. God loves you too much for that to happen to you. Uh, God is merciful, you won't experience that trouble, that suffering. Now, was Peter thinking that when he uses this phrase? I don't know. Maybe it's like uh, the phrase goodbye. We say goodbye all the time. You've said goodbye in your life hundreds, if not thousands of times. Goodbye, you know, underneath that word goodbye that we use, is, uh, uh, it's a contraction. God be with you. When you say goodbye to someone, do you mean God be with you or do you just say goodbye? I, I don't know. Is Peter saying never without me thinking about the mercy at the bottom? 
Or, or is Peter thinking, you're the Messiah. God loves you too much for this to happen. I, I don't know what Peter is thinking. But I do know how we often think. We often think, God loves you too much for this suffering to happen to you. Sometimes that thought, that thinking fuels doubt. Why is this suffering happening to me? Why am I experiencing this trouble, this pain in my life? If God loves me, I shouldn't be hurting this much. We think that. Sometimes we use that line of thinking to diminish or to overturn what the Bible teaches. I know what the Bible says about loving your enemies, but God doesn't want you to be in that much pain to have to think about what reconciliation might like. God loves you too much for you to have to endure that pain of loving that person because that person really did you dirty. So, so you know, God loves you too much for you to have to go through something so hard. I don't know if Peter's thinking that way, but I know that I sometimes do. Verse 23, there's this very sharp rebuke from Jesus, perhaps the sharpest rebuke in all of the Gospels. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter goes from being the rock, the foundation stone, to being the stumbling block he, he, he goes from being the rock to being Satan. We human beings are inconsistent creatures. F.D.L. Bruner said that if Peter in this passage represents the church, he goes from being the rock to being Satan. He goes, sometimes Bruner said, the church is the means by which Jesus is going to reach the world and the greatest source of Jesus' trouble. That seems accurate to me. Now, Jesus calls Peter Satan, not because he thinks that Satan, uh, that Peter is uh, possessed uh, or demon possessed, but, but Peter is uh, uh, speaking satanic type things. Satan also discouraged Jesus from going to the cross and dying. And Jesus had to respond to uh, Peter uh, just like how he had responded to Satan. So in, in Matthew 16, 23, he says, Get behind me, Satan, away with you, but look at Matthew 4.10. Same language, very similar language. Matthew 4.10 says, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then in verses 8 and 9, this is the temptation that Satan had offered him uh, uh, to Jesus. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Satan says, you don't need to suffer. I'll give you glory. I'll give you glory. You don't need to suffer. Jesus says this is our natural inclination. This is the way we think. We human beings, this is the way we think about suffering. We don't like suffering. It's not our preferences. It's not our plan. Has anybody scheduled in suffering for this week? Have you penciled it in your agenda for this week? Has anybody thought, you know, I I really should work some more suffering in to my life? Has anybody got that as a plan? Actually, you you might a little bit. 
it's puzzling. It's puzzling that Jesus would say that we think this way. It's not puzzling that Jesus would say that it's true. What's puzzling is that suffering sits so lightly in our minds, that the necessity of it, that the reality of it would rest so lightly in our minds. There's so many examples around us of the necessity of suffering and and the usefulness of suffering. Think about, I've already mentioned it, motherhood. For a baby to reach adulthood, to mature adulthood, I don't mean just turn 18, but for a baby to reach like mature, real adulthood, someone's going to have to suffer. Or think about athletics. If you want to win, if you want to end up on the championship platform, you have got to suffer. It's funny if you think about this. Every, the plot of every sports movie ever made is the same. In the opening scenes, the team or the champion loses, loses some competition and is in despair. And then there's a moment of inspiration. Somebody comes and inspires this um, athlete, this team. And then for the next 60 seconds, there is a montage of working out. Uh, music and the montage, right? And you see in a darkened room, an alarm clock go off and you hit the alarm clock and you get out of bed at some ungodly hour and, and starts to go run. And, and there's a, a scene of him uh, or her, uh, the team lifting weights and sweating and running, running in the pavement. And there's inspirational music going on and, and, and beating slabs of meat in a frozen locker, right? Just working out, right? And, and, and 60 seconds, and then the last third of the movie is the championship bout, the championship game, uh, at which the team emerges victorious. Maybe, maybe we should change that to make those movies more realistic, and instead of a 60-second montage, maybe in that two-hour movie, there should be one hour and 58 minutes of working out, and then two minutes of actually the championship game, right? Wouldn't that be more realistic? I don't want to watch that movie. It'd be horrible. <laughs> I, I wish real life, I wish the hard parts of real life could be broken down into a 60-second montage with some inspirational music. From a biblical viewpoint, we know why there's so much suffering. We know why there's so much suffering in the world. It's a consequence of living in this broken world. God made the world and he made it perfect. He made it as the overflow of his love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And he made us, his image bearers in the world to have a relationship with him and to know him and follow him. It was wonderful. We decided that we could run it better than God can, that his commands were oppressive and not life-giving. So we, we violated his commands. And in Genesis 3, the suffering comes. God says to women, to Eve, it will be painful for you to bring forth children. And God says to Adam, it will be painful for you to bring forth food from the ground. Suffering. And Jesus has come to rescue us from that reality, to fix the world that we have broken. To to bring about justice. God will fix the world. For the world to be fixed, justice must be done. And the Lord Jesus bore justice for us on the cross so that all who believe might have life and forgiveness in him. Jesus bore God's righteous judgment in our place on our behalf. This is what messiahs do. Do you believe that? It's the most important thing about our church 
is to invite you, to plead with you, to place your faith in the Lord Jesus, who is the Savior, the one who died for us on the cross. The disciples must have been reeling from this. Can you imagine John or James or Andrew after hearing what Jesus says to Peter? Anybody else have any questions? No, no, no. They must have been reeling from this. And before they can recover, he turns and applies this to them. And he talks to them about their cross. Let's talk secondly, though, here about your cross. We've talked about Jesus' cross. Let's talk about your cross, verses 24 through 28. Jesus' cross is not just payment. It is centrally payment, substitutionary payment for our sins. But it is also a model for us to follow. He says in verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Here is the necessity of self-denial in the process of following Jesus. The reality, if you're a follower of Jesus, you say no to yourself. You say no to your inclinations. You say no to some of your uh, desires. You say no to uh, your actions. You, You say no. That's what followers of Jesus do. There was a a board game that was uh, around, you could have bought it in the 1950s, called Going to Jerusalem. And it was made by Parker Brothers. And the fun of this game was you got to be one of the disciples. You didn't get to be a little Scotty dog or a little top hat or a little wheelbarrow. You were a disciple, a little plastic figurine disciple, a little plastic bearded dude with a robe and a cane or a staff. And um, you would move around the board, rolling dice. (sighs) What disciple would play with dice? I can't believe it. But anyway, you'd roll dice, start in Bethlehem, and you got to move. You go to Caesarea, and you go to the Sea of Galilee, and you experience all the wonderful miracles that Jesus did. And uh, when you got to land on certain spots or roll a certain number on those dotted cube, devil cubes, you, uh, you would, um, um, they gave you a little, a little black book that looked kind of like a Bible, a short little Bible, and you'd open it up and it would give you instructions about what you're supposed to do if you landed on certain places in certain towns. And, and you go all the way around the board, and the winner is the first one to make it to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You win. You know something's wrong with that? There's no crucifixion in the board game of Christianity. No demons. No angry Pharisees. Maybe that's good for plastic disciples with little Bibles but it won't do for what Jesus says here in this passage. We say no to ourselves. You can make a list of things that the Bible says for us that we routinely say no to. Here's just a couple things that come to mind in part because of the context of the passage. The Bible teaches us to say no to hoarding wealth. I mention this because in in verse 26, Jesus says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? I hope I'm not the only person who does this. Maybe I am. I've mentioned this before. When it comes time for me to do my taxes, I get my paperwork together, and I see the receipt that I have gotten from the church for my giving to the church. And every month, when the money comes out of my checking account and goes to the church's checking account, I write that faithfully in my checking account, and that little amount of money goes 
when in the course of a month, uh, a year, you add it all together, you look at it and you're, wow, that's, that's, that's money. And, and I, I'm, I'm tempted at that moment to think about all the things that I could buy with that money. If instead of it going out of my checking account into uh, the, to the church, if it had gone somewhere else, what, what I could do with, with that money. I'm not immune to advertising. Where's the vaccine to make me immune to advertising? So that all these things that come in front of me that, that draw my attention, that I'm sure I need, I'm sure they would make me happy if I could just have them. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks that way. Uh, Jesus says no to hoarding wealth. He says no to satisfying your inordinate desires. That word inordinate comes from St. Augustine. It means desires that are out of order, that are for the wrong thing or out of balance. Uh, Titus 2, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts, inordinate desires. There's other no's that are in the Bible. If you were to make your list, can you make a list from this week? If you're a follower of Jesus, can you make a list this week of ways in which you have said no to yourself? Areas in which you have said no? It's not a prerequisite to being a Christian that you be able to produce that list. It's actually a consequence, a result of your faith in the Lord Jesus, that there's no's. Fred Craddock helps us think about this maybe a little bit more if you're thinking about your own list. He says, when we read passages like this, or maybe Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, we think to ourselves, yes, Lord, I will. That's what I want to do my whole life. Take everything that I have and everything that I'm here. Here's a thousand dollars, like my life is a thousand dollar bill and I'm going to set it down and I want to go out in a blaze of glory for you, sacrificing my life. Yes. Fred Craddock says, that's often what we think about. Jesus tends to say, here's your $1,000, it's great. Take it to the bank and turn it in for quarters. And Jesus asks us to make every day 25 cents, 50 cents, 75 cents of sacrifice. Things here, things there, little steps that maybe nobody else notices. But for Christ's sake, we've said no to ourselves. Do you have a list of 25-cent sacrifices, 50-cent no's, 75-cent steps on the road with your cross behind Jesus? Now, we should be careful here. We have to be very careful. Does this mean, this self-denying, no-to-self sort of life, mean that Christians are sullen people, that we're dark and joyless and dour people? There are some people who think that about Christians, that that's what we are, that we're repressed, unhappy people. I blame it on the Puritans. Actually, we should blame it on the parody of the Puritans, not the real Puritans, because the real Puritans were happy people. But the parody of the Puritans is that they were very unhappy people. For H.L. Um, Mencken, one of the uh, a great uh, political commentary uh, newspaper writer, said, defined Puritanism this way. Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Is this, is this what Jesus is telling us to do? The Puritans always wore black. They never smiled. 
They didn't always wear black. They wore black for formal occasions like getting your picture painted. And, and, and the Puritans, well, we know the Puritans because Jonathan Edwards preached that famous sermon that's in every American lit textbook, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's the only Puritan sermon some people have read. It would be much better for the world if they would take that sermon out and put in instead, Heaven is a World of Love, another of Jonathan Edwards' sermons. It would capture more what he was about. Or the diverse excellencies of Jesus Christ. That'd be a good Puritan sermon to read. Let us, let's pay attention to why Jesus says that his followers say no. Why did he command us to live a self-denying, cross-carrying type life? Self-denial, this passage tells us, self-denial is for the sake of glory. Jesus wants us to ruthlessly eliminate from your life everything that distracts you or everything that diminishes your ability to enjoy the eternal glory that will be made manifest when the Lord Jesus returns. He wants to maximize your eternal joy by commanding you to turn away from little pleasures, little temporary pleasures, let's be honest, that feel really big but little temporary pleasures that will distract or diminish your enjoyment of eternal joy. That's the logic, isn't it, in in verse 25? If you want to save your life, that is, if you want to have eternal joy, lose it now. If you lose your life for me, you'll find it. Or verse 26, what, what good is it to gain the whole world and get forfeit your soul? Or what are you going to give in exchange for your There's little pleasures everywhere, little accumulations, little things you can do, and they distract you. They diminish your potential to enjoy eternal, uh, to have uh, eternal joy, to enjoy eternal glory that is going to be revealed. Verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he'll reward each person according to what they have done. Live for that moment, Jesus says. Self-denial is fueled by Jesus' own death and resurrection, and it's fueled by the anticipation of the glory that is to come. And you know how this works. That future glory is great enough that it's supposed to roll back in your life and change the way you live today. Jesus is not about repression. He's about satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction in him. You know how this works, that future glory can roll back in. You know how this works because you have been making plans for your vacation. You've been thinking about this for a while. You've already reserved the campsite, or you've uh, reserved the condo or uh, at the shore, or you've, uh, you're already thinking about the week that you're going to be in the cabin in the mountains and, and how you're going to walk through the creek and drive to your favorite ice cream store that's only half a mile away. It's 200 miles away from your house, but it's only half a mile away from that cabin that you're going to go to. You're already thinking. You're already thinking about how the sand is going to be that warm on, on cold, miserable May days like this. You're already thinking about how that warm sand is going to feel in your toes. And it, it changes the way you walk now. Gives you a little bit of buoyancy, doesn't it? Huh. Yeah, you can go to work tomorrow because in three months, you're going to be at the shore. <laughs> Future joy rolling back in and changing how you live today. Jesus says, Future glory that rolls back into your life today. This is how Jesus lived. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. 
This is how Christians live. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's the phrase. So for the joy set before you, take up your cross and follow him. I'll read. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I just read an ex, uh, just listened to a book by Eric Larson uh, called Dead Wake, and it's about the sinking of the Lusitania. On May 7th, 1915, at 2.09 p.m., a German U-boat shot a torpedo at the, the Lusitania, British luxury liner, when it was 12 miles off the coast of Ireland. That great ship sank in 18 minutes. There were 1,900 passengers on board. 12 of them, 1,200 of them died in this attack. Now, Eric Larson spends a couple of chapters talking about what the passengers did during those 18 minutes. It took some of them a while to realize that the ship was going down. Some of them were, were paralyzed. They were just absolutely paralyzed with, with terror. Couldn't do anything. Many of them ran for the life jackets that they stored in their staterooms. I don't know why they kept them in the staterooms. I don't know why they did that. But you, they went down to their staterooms to get their life jackets and go back up on, onto the deck and wait for the lifeboats. Some of them did that. Some of them, there were parents there, had children scattered around the ship. They ran to gather all of their kids. One guy, he was carrying with him Charles Dickens' personal copy of A Christmas Carol. He had it with him in his luggage, and he was taking it to London because he was going to sell it for a lot of money. He went down to his cabin and got Charles Dickens' book and, and took it with him back up on deck. It took a while. It took a while for some of them to realize it, but eventually they all realized the boat is going down and it's time to get off the boat. If you want to survive, you got to get off the boat. We live in a world that is sinking, that is subject to God's judgment, and Jesus is warning us here, avoid the temptation. Avoid the temptation to, to spend your life making yourself comfortable here. Now is not the time to invest in deck chairs. Now is not the time to, to begin a 14-day shuffleboard tournament, as, as it were. Don't live merely for what the boat has to offer because the boat is going down. Following Jesus means glory. It means glory. But on the way, there is suffering. I have, I have one more thought as I think about this and I think about Mother's Day. Today is the day for mother glory, right? Motherhood glory. Uh, I want you to think about the comparison between mother glory and mother suffering. There'll be a meal today, maybe. Um, maybe flowers or card, that hug from your surly teenager. But we can be honest, right? Does the suffering, doesn't that outweigh... Mother's Day glory. I mean, some of you were in labor for longer than the whole day will last, right? So certainly, certainly the suffering is greater than the glory, right? We can be honest about that. But you know, it's just the opposite when it comes to following Jesus, that the glory far outweighs the suffering. 
This is light and momentary affliction in comparison with the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed when Jesus comes. So follow him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Fix your eyes on him. Live for his glory. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you and we are grateful to you for this passage of scripture because we often err by living for, to avoid suffering, living for our comfort in the here and now, and not living to maximize our eternal joy. Lord, we confess to you we are often distracted by what feels like huge pleasures here, but are in comparison poisons. And, and temporary. Lord, we confess we're often confused and we're often distracted. I'm, I'm grateful you know this because you told Peter he was thinking like a mere human being. So we come before you that asking you that by the power of your spirit and through your word that you would change the way we think, changing the way we live, Help us, grant us this week that we might say no to ourselves, not as acts of repression, but as acts of faith in the glory that will be revealed when our great Savior, the Lord Jesus, returns. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things together in his name, saying, amen.